2. A World of Numbers It is no exaggeration to say that the era of decay of the world economy was at the same time the era of international economic conferences. Willem Rupka in 1929, the dream of a flat world economy turned into a nightmare. The Wall Street stock market crash initiated a sequence of events that led to the Great Depression, or, as it is known in German, the World Economic Crisis, Weltwirtschaftskrise. One historian calls the 1930s the end of globalization. After its surprising recovery after the First World War, international trade slowed again as national governments sheltered domestic production behind tariff falls of unprecedented height. In the world of money, the United States suspended the convertibility of dollars into gold in 1931, followed by the British pound. The end of the gold standard meant that one could no longer assume that today's investment, even denominated in the storied world currency of the pound, would be worth the same amount in gold tomorrow. In the minds of liberals, this was an attack on not just the sanctity of money, but the sanctity of contract. One German liberal claimed that this act, more than any other, had broken the economic unity of the world. As the gold standard dissolved, the empire principle, which had suffered a blow after the end of the Habsburg and Ottoman empires, revived as the European powers relied on their colonies and commonwealths for raw materials traded behind tariff walls in imperial blocks. To the liberal viewer, the world of the 1930s was in segments. The barricades pictured on Clive Morrison Bell's tariff walls map extended south from Europe to encase overseas territories like India, Algeria, the Gold Coast, and South Africa. The world economy presented as a honeycomb of walls built from tariff fortifications, for liberals, it was a painful irony that the world economy came into focus as a totality in statistics at the very moment it seemed to vanish in real life. The global economic crisis led to proposals for global economic solutions, with the League of Nations leading the way. In the words of one historian, the injunction of the 1930s was to look at the world. Economic data proliferated. The Secretary-General of the International Chamber of Commerce, ICC, remarked in 1937 that there are so many different sources and centers of information scattered throughout the world, having no connection one with the other, that businessmen and economists find themselves almost drowned by a veritable flood of pamphlets, statistical bulletins, reviews, and papers. The plans for the Universal Exposition in Paris in 1937 expressed the spirit of the decade with its plans for a lighthouse of the world, twice the height of the Eiffel Tower. Visitors would drive their own cars up ramps spiraling the concrete structure half a mile in the sky. According to a fanciful accompanying illustration, visitors would see as far as Belgium, Spain, and England. While the World Congress of Universal Documentation was held during the Paris exhibition, nowhere was the global idea more at home than in the quaint town of Geneva, where the stripped classicist Palace of Nations stood like a secular temple to the idea of the international. The tenants of a single building, the Palais Wilson, which opened on the shores of Lake Geneva in 1937, suggested the diversity of approaches to the world. Among the 30 organizations housed in the former hotel were the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, the New Commonwealth Institute, the International Labor Organization, the World Alliance for Promoting International Friendship Through the Churches, the International Council of Women, the International Bureau of Education, the International Migration Service, the World Association for Reform of the Calendar, 
the World Narcotic Defense Association, and the Universal Esperantist Association. In the 1920s and 1930s, Geneva was confronting not only the problems of the world as individual concerns, but the problem of the world itself, how to manage the globe as a whole. The famous spirit of Geneva, said one observer in 1931, may well prove to be the embryo of a future world patriotism. The city seemed like the only candidate for the capital of the world polity that H.G. Wells called Cosmopolis. The world economy came into being in the 1930s in Geneva on paper and in numbers through the efforts of economists to understand the causes of the Great Depression and seek remedies for it. The head of the League of Nations economic section, Arthur Salter, who later joined the Mont Pelerin Society, wrote in 1932 that the Depression has at least done one thing which may in the future prove of great value. It has revealed the anatomy of the world's economic structure. The core group of the future neoliberal movement either relocated to Geneva or passed through the Swiss city in the 1930s. In the 1920s and 1930s, they were all involved with projects of either creating statistical portraits of the national and world economies or seeking to understand their cyclical rise and fall. In 1927, Mises and Hayek expanded their cooperation with the ICC to found a business cycle research institute in the offices on the Stubenring in Vienna. This job led Hayek to the Center of Global Economic Research in Geneva. The League hired Gottfried Haberler, a colleague of Mises and Hayek's, for a major study of the world economy beginning in 1934. In 1937, Wilhelm Röpke, a central figure in the neoliberal movement, also moved to Geneva, recruited for a global study of the effects of changes in world trade and production. Historians refer to the famous 1938 Lippmann Colloquium in Paris as the birthplace of neoliberalism. They rarely note, though, that it was only one episode in a decade of overlapping projects devoted to studying the conditions of the great society, not at the national level, but at the scale of the globe. Neoliberalism was born out of projects of world observation, global statistics gathering, and international investigations of the business cycle. Why is this fact so often missed by historians? Part of the reason is that the ultimate conclusion of neoliberals about the Great Depression and its aftermath was that numbers were not enough. Even as techniques of planning gained traction both in Geneva and in the mainstream of the economics profession by the end of the 1930s, neoliberals rallied around the belief that neither statistics nor mathematically informed theory nor the nascent science of econometrics would suffice to forecast or stave off future crises. They even thought that the increasing sophistication of such approaches might, counterintuitively, be increasing the likelihood of another crisis by fostering the false faith that science could make the world economy crisis-proof. As Rupka and Alexander Rusto wrote in their contribution to the 1938 Lippmann Colloquium, recent advances in purely economic analysis have done much to make us understand better the mechanics of economic oscillations. But here again, refinement in detail has been bought at the price of blindness towards the extra-economic contexts which constitute the problem of reality. Perhaps most radical was Hayek's conclusion in that decade, building on an earlier skepticism about statistics cultivated in Viennese debates, that comprehensive knowledge itself would always, and must always, elude the economist because of its necessary dispersal among all members of society. For him to climb the lighthouse of the world in search of a synoptic view from which to direct and plan 
was only the setup for a long fall. By the end of the 1930s, the Geneva School neoliberals agreed that the most important pillars of integration could not be represented or understood through graphs, charts, tables, maps, or formulas. They redirected their attention to cultural and social bonds, but also to the framework of tradition and the rule of law, all of which they perceived to be disintegrating in the 1930s. The road away from statistics and business cycle research led neoliberals to, as they put it, think in orders. From that point onward, they sharpened their focus on designing institutions that would best safeguard the market. The world economy must be defended, and Geneva School neoliberalism would be defined by the search for state and legal forms that were up to the task, at the level of the nation, but also, more importantly, at the level of the world. The Rise of Barometer Vision One of the most famous images used to illustrate the Great Depression is the so-called Kindleberger Spiral. In an eye-catching circular graph, it tracks the relentless decline in the volume of world trade from January 1929 until June 1933. Though known by the name of the American economic historian who popularized it, the diagram might more accurately be called either the Morgenstern Spiral, after the Austrian economist who created the form of representation, or the Condliff Spiral, after the first creator of a popularized version. Its parentage and its peregrinations captured the international collaboration networks of the time. Oskar Morgenstern first used the spiral to show the declining foreign trade of Austria in April 1933. It then appeared expanded to the scale of the world in a newspaper notice for the World Economic Conference in London created by the Swiss Bank Corporation and appeared soon afterward in Geneva as the lead image in the League of Nations' second-ever World Economic Survey prepared by J.B. Condliff. By November, the globalized spiral reappeared in Vienna. The Viennese publication that featured the spiral was the monthly report of the Austrian Business Cycle Research Institute, founded by Mises and Hayek in late 1926 and housed in the Vienna Chamber of Commerce building. Morgenstern took over its direction from Hayek in 1931, Understanding the business cycle was the central intellectual challenge of the 1920s and 1930s for economists. By the early 1930s, Geneva was the hub of such efforts, with spokes extending not only to Vienna, but across Central Europe, over the English Channel, and traversing the Atlantic. At stake was the question of whether it was possible to predict the future. By finding the right aspects of economic life to capture and compile in numbers, would it be possible not only to comprehend but also to forecast what Columbia University economist Wesley Clare Mitchell called, in his foundational work from 1913, the complicated processes by which seasons of business, prosperity, crisis, depression, and revival come about in the modern world? Although research into the business cycle began before the First World War, it boomed afterward. The U.S. government funded its study, and business cycle research institutes were established throughout Europe and in the Soviet Union. One of the preoccupations of researchers was how to express the business cycle visually, how to make the invisible market visible. Techniques of illustrating the business cycle had originated with private services for investors. As the stock market boomed in the 1920s, and ever more Americans had wealth bound up in finance, there was a ready market for advice that might offer an advantage. Charts and diagrams offered information about the direction of economic activity that could be consumed at a glance. Through such visualizations, one scholar argues, 
The popular reports, like those of Roger Babson, gave readers a sense of the economy as a complex but unified system that operated according to its own internal logic. A chart of fundamental conditions, for example, aggregated a range of data into a single sinking and rising line, turning time into a topography of economic chasms and peaks. Predictions of the economic future, based on the compilation of statistics, were collectively called business barometers. By the 1920s, the leader in the field was the Harvard Committee on Economic Research's three-cycle barometer. The A, B, and C curves of the Harvard barometer stood for speculation, business, and money, roughly drawn from price movement of stocks, commodities, and the loans and credits of major banks. By observing recurrent lags between these three indicators, barometer readers believed they could forecast the change in business conditions over time. The metaphor of the barometer implied that the economy was like the weather, a sphere outside of direct human control. One could adapt Adam Smith's famous metaphor of the invisible hand to speak of the invisible wind of the market, captured in charts and graphs. The economic conditions portrayed in three lines were experienced as a unity, but were actually composed of innumerable tiny organic processes of which we could perceive only the effects in the aggregate. The barometer metaphor went in two directions. As Hayek noted in 1927, it seemed to make the future legible to the common person. Yet the barometer only appears to forecast the coming weather to the layperson, but actually only measures the height of the current air pressure, suggesting only a probability. A meteorologist or economist had access to the broader context, meaning that the simple observation of a business barometer can never replace the judgment of a given situation based on knowledge of the causal relationships between all the available facts. The wave movement captured in the chart can only be explained by the autonomous laws of economic life, and, Hayek insisted, only the economist understood those laws. The goal of what one could call barometer vision was, as Austrian statistician Karl Prebrum put it, the discovery of the laws relating to the sequence of economic fluctuations. The barometer metaphor helped reinforce the authority of the economist as being akin to that of a scientist, conveying the phenomena of the world in a digestible form for the layperson while preserving the economist's monopoly on the secrets of causality. In 1932, Fritz Machlup, a member of the Mises Circle, expressed the idea of economist as scientist in a newspaper column, writing that the laws of economics apply even if the minister, the banker, and the parliamentarian does not know or recognize them, just as the laws of physics are not swayed based on whether some technician adheres to them or not. The barometer simultaneously revealed and concealed the truth of economic life. It is significant that barometer vision saw the world at the scale of the nation. The national economy was the object of observation and the subject of action. A related metaphor of the time, originating with the British economist and later architect of the welfare state, William Beveridge, cast graphic depictions of the cycle as the pulse of the nation. Dutch researcher... Willem Eindhoven had been granted the Nobel Prize for Medicine in 1924 for his pioneering development of electrocardiography, creating a means for measuring the pulse of the human heart on a line chart over time. Business cycle research and the visual technique of the business barometer helped place the economist alongside the medical doctor as the master of an esoteric branch of knowledge amenable to a mode of representation comprehensible to the average person. 
As one historian has observed, the 1920s were a time when economics became understood as a domain of technical expertise beyond politics. The chart was an accessory in this shift. The suffering and thriving national economy was made visible in the line of the chart, and the root causes of individuals' pain or prosperity could be seen too. Business Cycle Research and the Modern State Institutes responsible for studying the business cycle became standard features of the modern state between the two world wars. Most European states had their own business cycle institute by the time of the Great Depression, and scholars have shown how the League began to export this model of research into Asia by the 1930s. One of the most important centers worldwide was the National Bureau of Economic Research, NBER, in the United States, which took up a special role of providing economic advice during Herbert Hoover's administration. The NBER was a product of transatlantic exchange. Its first president, from 1920 to 1933, was Edwin Gay, who had studied economics for 12 years in Germany before joining Harvard in 1902. Hayek visited the NBER and its influential director of research, Wesley Clare Mitchell, during the year he spent in the United States in the early 1920s. He also met Charles Bullock, the director of the Harvard Economic Service, who recalled being favorably impressed by the young Hayek. Hayek brought the idea of business cycle research back to Austria with him, In his words, he imported from America a new idea of great predictions. He wrote to Mitchell in 1926 that his efforts then embodied some of the slowly ripening fruits of my sojourn in the United States. Mises and Hayek led the campaign to establish a permanent home for business cycle research in Vienna. In a time when the entire civilized world makes decisions and arrangements on the basis of the knowledge of economic and business cycle institutes, they wrote... Austria would demonstrate to the world either a shameful, indolent backwardness to its own disadvantage or mistrust-producing insincerity and secretiveness that would surely place its creditworthiness in question. To be against the Institute, they wrote, would be to be against progress. Here, as elsewhere, Mises and Hayek made a case for the centrality of the economist in the conduct of the modern state. Economic knowledge was a central fixture of modernity, A state unequipped with economic research was doomed to fall behind in the race of nations. Because taking the pulse of the nation put the economist in the position of the scientist or medical doctor on this view, the economist was entitled privileged access to the internal workings of private business. The first challenge to trying to understand the business cycle was getting access to the data. Mises and Hayek argued that it was necessary to overcome the life-threatening secretiveness of Austrian enterprises and organizations. In their view, there was no private ownership of economic knowledge. Internal operations of private business must be made transparent to the gaze of the economist. To be a good economic citizen for one's own future prosperity meant a necessary disclosure of internal operations. What made the very demand of access thinkable was the rupture of the First World War. One of the pivotal figures in Central Europe was Walter Rottenau, the chairman of the AEG Electrical Engineering Company, who had held the official title Raw Materials Dictator for Imperial Germany during the First World War. Hayek attributed the beginning of his interest in economics to Rottenau and his ideas about how to reorganize the economy. Rottenau's achievement was to batter down the wall between the state and business, This was being done at almost exactly the same time in Russia in the course of the Russian Revolution. 
Yet Rodenau may have been the more influential in the long run because he kept the institution of private ownership intact. Rodenau created transparency of the activities of capitalists without expropriating the capitalists themselves. The kernel of private property was salvaged. Although the dictates of the wartime economy were extreme, the loss of the inviolability of business information carried over into the era after Rathenau and all the countries that had undergone the First World War. On both sides of the conflict, total war meant subordination of the entire nation's energies toward mobilization. In the case of inter-allied cooperation, it also meant cooperation beyond the nation. Large-scale economic planning and statistics collection entered the repertoire of modern statecraft during the Great War. As mentioned in Chapter 1, the idea of businessmen opening their account books beyond the firm represented a revision of the classical liberal vision. The privacy of the businessman was no longer sacred. In business cycle research, social science was applied to the market, but not, as had been the case of the movements of social reform and progressivism, in order to moderate the disruptive effects of capitalism on everyday working people. The social, or society, had been conceived in many ways, parallel to but in opposition to the economy, as a domain of non-market values and properties that needed to be preserved against the potentially corrosive effects of unregulated private enterprise. This implication is preserved much more clearly in German, where the term sozial has a normative edge, implying social reform, as opposed to the more neutral category of gesellschaftlich. The Verein für Sozialpolitik is the archetypical case of this form of social policy, and its lead was followed from Japan to Ireland to the United States. Much of the business cycle research of the 1920s was a different beast. Here, economic knowledge was more commonly being developed to maximize rather than moderate the effectiveness and scope of the market. The business cycle research institutes were the eyes that would see the activities of business to help business better see itself. Hayek referred to the institutes as business cycle observation services and to the gathering of statistical data as a new means of observation. Charts would be mirrors that enabled deeper self-understanding. As the metaphors suggest, the visual aspect was key. Mises and Hayek wrote that information needed to be prompt and displayed in a form that could be easily grasped. Mises and Hayek described the most important thing as the pedagogical value of constant reference to the cyclical nature of business cycle movements offered by regular business cycle reporting. It allows for a planned distribution of investments over a long period of time, as well as for the selection of the time point for public works. The Research Institute was to provide useful knowledge, providing data about the pulse of the economy in a way that could advise both the private and the public sector about how to coordinate their activity. Both the business person and the statesperson needed to be trained to understand the cycle. The efforts of Mises and Hayek succeeded in late 1926. The Austrian Business Cycle Research Institute was officially constituted on December 15, 1926. Hayek became its director in January 1927, with a secretary as the only other staff member. The Austrian liberals linked their work immediately to international circles. In November 1926, Mises communicated with Alexander Loveday, the head of the economic section of the League of Nations, who welcomed the new institute and promised to bring it into the circuit of distribution for the international projects organized out of Geneva. 
In January 1927, Hayek and Richard Reich wrote to the League about the new institute. They said that its research would be both historical and current. It would create a time series that extended well before the war and would also continue to collect data in collaboration with neighboring countries. The Austrian Institute used the three-cycle barometer of the Harvard Economic Service. Like other barometers, they produced portraits of the nation in numbers and time. In their first report, they produced a three-cycle barometer chart of Austria up to the outbreak of the First World War. In another chart offered as an example of the methods of representation used in the reports, the Austrian Institute distilled the economic health of the nation down to a single line. The curve was said to represent an average of the movement of the most important figures characteristic of the course of business in Austria. The dips are explained by strikes and labor shortages and the spikes by local and international events. For a business person or an interested citizen, the single line marked the passage of history through the eyes of economic data. Politics subordinated to the rise and fall of an abstracted market climate. The national frame of the business barometers made sense for the homeland of business cycle research, the United States, which had the largest domestic economy in the world. But even there, the importance of global events led the Harvard Economic Service to internationalize its research in the mid-1920s. Hayek's first encounter with John Maynard Keynes came at a gathering of forecasters coordinated by the Harvard Economic Service at the London School of Economics, LSE, in June 1928. For his part, Hayek realized early that the nation-state frame did not transfer well to smaller countries. Austria and other post-colonial successor states in Central Europe were much more dependent on the business cycles of neighboring countries than larger countries or empires were. The precariousness of the position of the dissolved Habsburg Empire meant that foreign economies mattered more. In 1927, Hayek wrote in an industry magazine that small countries might have economies very different from those surrounding them, but they were nonetheless interdependent. Without a vast internal market or a vast overseas empire, no nation could afford to ignore its neighbor. Hayek sought to coordinate with other Central European countries and began to think in more theoretical terms about how one could practically begin to create a synthetic statistical portrait of the region. In March 1928, he organized a conference of Central European Business Cycle Research Institutes, which included representatives from Hungary, Poland, and Czechoslovakia, as well as Adolf Luva from the Kiel Institute for the World Economy and Paul Rosenstein Roden, one of the future founders of development economics. In his invitation, Hayek pointed out that the attention to the economic development of neighboring states is possibly as important as the economic situation of one's own country. He cited the conclusion of an expert gathering at Geneva in 1926 that, in a country largely dependent upon external markets, more especially in the case of certain European states, a barometer based wholly on data referring to national phenomena would, in all probability, prove inadequate to foreshadow the trend of economic life, since the business of that country will tend to follow the variations in the prosperity of the market upon which it is dependent. In pursuit of this portrait of economic health beyond the nation, Hayek called for a regularized exchange of economic data among the Central European states to produce a complete picture of the economic situation of the larger region and investigate the mutual dependency of smaller economic areas. It was the very peripheral status of countries like post-imperial Austria that made it necessary to be attentive to the whole. 
economic information was effectively proposed as a way of resolving problems that rose at the end of empire. In creating connections to economists in successor states, Hayek and others sought to knit back together the former Habsburg space through the exchange of data, enabling the restoration of market relationships. In the absence of the political unit of the empire, economic experts proposed a network of information. After the stock market crash of 1929 and the onset of the Depression, funding from the United States helped to move into reality the vision of a central Europe interconnected by streams of information. Edmund E. Day, statistician and economist, became the director of the Rockefeller Foundation in 1929 and made scientific inquiry in the field of industrial hazards and economic stabilization the primary focus of funding. In the five years after the crash, the Rockefeller Foundation earmarked close to $18 million to research in social sciences, a colossal investment in the power of knowledge to solve social and economic problems. Vienna was the first business cycle institute in Europe to receive Rockefeller funding with a grant of $20,000 in 1931 that was a windfall in economically depressed Austria. Hayek's vision of a network of Central European data sharing was brought closer to realization by funding for economic research institutes in Bulgaria, Romania, Hungary, and Poland. The League of Nations-sponsored International Studies Conference and the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace took up research in the Danubian region in the late 1930s. Studying the dissolved Habsburg Empire would provide a first version of what would be called Area Studies after the Second World War, with a region of formerly independent states being examined as an interdependent economic unit. Hayek's collaborations were an important step in beginning to think about the business cycle and the business barometer beyond the scale of the individual nation. The predicament of post-imperial Austria directed attention outward to neighboring nations and the world beyond. The pulse of the nation was not enough. What was necessary, Hayek made clear, was the pulse of the region and the pulse of the world. The Pulse of the World F. A. Hayek's work at the Austrian Business Cycle Research Institute brought him into contact with the Center of World Economic Research in Geneva. Alexander Loveday supported Hayek's efforts to create a network of Central European business cycle research in 1928. In early 1931, Loveday invited Hayek to Geneva as the representative of the Vienna Institute for the first international gathering of economists taking the measure of the world after the stock market crash. Loveday thought highly of Hayek. In March 1931, he wrote to Morgenstern regarding the origins and causes of the Depression that there is nobody in Europe so well fitted to go into these points as yourself and Dr. Hayek. By that year, institutions were already in the process of dissolution. As Hayek left Vienna for Geneva, the venerable Kreditanstalt Bank was unraveling and would declare bankruptcy by May, initiating a series of bank failures that sped the fall of Central Europe into depression. The meeting in Geneva was not a casual conclave of academics, but it had the urgency of economic triage. As Loveday put it, it was an attempt to cast eyes beyond the abyss of the immediate future to the vaguer hazards of a more distant horizon. The convener of the meeting was the Swedish economist Bertil Ullin. He had gathered reports from the invited economists about the business cycles in their respective countries. Such international coordination was felt to be necessary because, 
Whereas a number of pre-war depressions were confined to a relatively limited area, today the repercussions are felt throughout the world. The world problem, the experts concluded, should be studied on a world basis. Although phrased differently, the goal was the same as the Chilean-German statistician Ernst Wagemann had proposed in 1928, to inquire if there was a world economic as well as national economic business cycle. The conclusion of the gathered economists in 1931 was unanimous. Even if solutions were still elusive, they should be sought at the scale of the world. The first step to approaching the world problem was to make the data comparable. The League of Nations had begun to standardize world economic statistics after the First World War. In 1920, it set up an international statistical commission with members of the International Statistical Institute, the International Institute of Agriculture, and the International Chamber of Commerce. It began publication of the Statistical Yearbook in 1927. In 1928, a meeting called to ratify an international convention on economic statistics was attended by delegates from 40 countries, and they created a committee of statistical experts. The process of standardizing and gathering world statistics led to the creation of a new kind of global vision. Condliffe, one of the experts in charge of the process, wrote that, The economists who do so are international not only in being drawn from different nationalities, but also in being able, nay, in being compelled to interpret their data from a non-national viewpoint. Creating statistics was globalizing in the sense of producing a single world picture and changing the mentality of the economists themselves. As the data from one country fit into those from another, Condliffe wrote, they see the world as a developing economic organism. Mises wrote in 1928 that, for the liberal, the world does not end at the borders of the state. His political thinking encompasses the whole of mankind. The statistical globalism of the League of Nations gave a numerical tangibility to this vision. Ulin's report, after the 1931 meeting, reinforced the idea of what he called international interdependencies and the inability of states to escape the push and pull of global economic forces. In 1932, Arthur Salter referred to the collective laboratory work on the problem of the business cycle, analogizing economists to natural scientists working on a problem that would have a definitive solution. Beginning in the same year, Condliffe oversaw the publication of the new annual World Economic Survey, which he described as a natural sequel to the International Project of Collaboration initiated by Ulin. The second survey included Morgenstern's adapted spiral of world trade. The Vienna Institute was part of the project of making the world economy seen and known as a space of unified processes. They were helping create a world economy of numbers. Links between the Mises Circle and Geneva deepened when Haberle was appointed in May 1934 on Hayek's recommendation to write the follow-up volume to Ulin on theories of business cycles and the Depression. As we saw in Chapter 1, Haberle used the model of the spaceless world to build his analysis, equating tariffs, distances, and the actions of organized labor as comparable obstacles to the optimal distribution of the world's resources. Even if he was unsuccessful in proving it scientifically, he saw it as a matter of fact that business cycles could be internationalized. For a hundred years or more, he wrote, 
The economic connections between most countries in the world, industrialized countries as well as agricultural and raw material producing countries, have become so intimate and international trade so important for the various national economic systems that a closer connection between the ups and downs of the business cycle in different countries is to be expected. The bacillus of boom or depression, he wrote, travels freely from country to country. Even if causality remained opaque, the Great Depression had made the interconnection of world economic activity common sense in expert circles. At the March 1931 meeting of the American Economic Conference, Ernest Minor Patterson said, It is now painfully tried to observe that the world is an economic unit. Each area and each economic group is more than ever before dependent on the rest, and every irregularity in the operation of any part of the world's economic machine has widespread effects. Yet despite this fact, the approach of the economists has been largely a national approach. The exceptions he mentioned were the International Chamber of Commerce and the League of Nations. Acknowledging that an interconnected world economy existed was one thing. What to do about it was another. In 1936, Loveday gathered an august group of economists to discuss the first draft of Havelaar's report. The meeting included figures who would be central to the neoliberal intellectual movement, including Lionel Robbins, Willem Ropka, and Charles Rist. Hayek was unable to attend, as Robbins was acting as the representative from the LSE. In its form, Haberle's study, and the conference convened to discuss it, inaugurated something Robbins called the Haberle-like method. The method entailed group research on a big subject, followed by a larger meeting of experts to evaluate the results. The Haberler method established a form for international collaboration and data gathering, a halfway point between abstract economics and empirical statistics, with nothing less than the entire world economy as the object. It was organic and unbound to any one institution, gathering periodically to examine and exchange research results. The similarities of the Haberler method to the format of the post-war Mont Pelerin Society were not coincidental. Part of the Geneva experiment was a belief in the halfway point between theorizing and the spade work of data collection and standardization. Speaking at the International Statistical Institute in 1936, Karl Prebrum, Mises' old acquaintance from Vienna, who was now a leading figure at the International Labor Organization, ILO, tracked the descent of the economists from the clouds to the earth. Economists had begun with abstract notions of a worldwide universal economic system, but had been forced by events to work downward from lofty theorizing to the essential realities of economic life. Wrangling with the problem of the Great Depression deepened the marriage between statisticians and economists. As Hobbler put it in a letter to Loveday, he shared the goal of Mitchell and the NBER to bring theories and facts into closer touch. The Haberler method was about expanding the ambit of economists and public life and extending economists' reach into the domain of government. Just like the business cycle research institutes sought to breach the walls around corporate secrecy, the activity of international institutions, like the League, sought to draw information out of national governments.